The gospel lesson for this morning comes from the sixth chapter of Mark. Listen for the word of God. King Herod heard of it because Jesus' name had become known. And some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. That is how these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah. And still others said, it is a prophet, like like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Because Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, Herod's brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. And John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so now Herodias held a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she could not, because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet... He liked listening to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and his officers and for all the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So much so that the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, even half my kingdom. And so she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And her mother replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately, the girl rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist, on a platter. The king was deeply grieved. Yet, out of regard for his oaths and and for his guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we ask that you would be with us as we reflect upon your story. Be with me and my words and all of us in the meditations of our hearts that what we experience today would be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So this is a strange story, uh, a disturbing story, the kind of story that when you're preaching it, the only out you have is to at least make sure that somebody else is doing the children's sermon. (laughs) And if I had a camera and you could have seen your face (laughs) when you had that moment of silence. Oh, man. However, uh, honestly, what what you brought to them and to us... uh, maybe is, is enough for the day about how we encounter our own fears and is certainly some of what we'll speak about or I will speak about in the coming minutes. The story is strange and in part it's strange because it's a random, seemingly random chunk in the Gospel of Mark. Strange because Mark is known for his brevity and this story, this flashback, the only flashback located in Mark, is one of the longest narratives in all of Mark. And it's on the remembrance of John's beheading. It's strange because it shows how Herod is perhaps wrestling with his treatment of John, and it begs the question that isn't begged in any other treatment of Herod, does he have a good side? Does he have a moral conscience? Such an understanding of Herod is not found elsewhere in the, in the Gospels, and it is not verified by historical post-Gospel writings on the death of John the Baptist. Many writings say this is not actually how John died. It is strange and disturbing, even more so because the more I listen to and tell this story, the more I realize that if I were to put myself in the story, I can perhaps more relate to the character of Herod than I can to anyone else. Herod's pattern of fascination, of fear, denial, and eventually betrayal are manifested in extreme ways. No, I can't relate to enforcing imprisonment or beheading, but they are patterns of humanity to which I can relate and in some ways confront on a daily basis. Herod's pattern of behavior is the seemingly unavoidable pattern of being torn between choosing what feels safe and secure and self-protecting and comfortable and what feels risky and unknown and uncomfortable. Herod knows, it says, that John is a righteous man and a holy man, and so though he jails him, he protects him, he does not kill him. He has just enough fear, it seems, of John or of God that he keeps him alive, at least for now. And it says, as as Patrick talked about, he likes listening to him, but claims to be perplexed, confused. Now, I know that it's hard to decipher Bible speak sometimes, but it seems to me that John, of all people, was pretty much a straight shooter. Not mincing words was like one of his spiritual gifts. And according to this story, it's the one that landed him in prison in the first place. You can't marry your brother's wife. Is that confusing? But still, Herod is perplexed. Herod swears before all his guests at his birthday dinner, where the who's who of Galilee are gathered together. He gives them an oath. He gives an oath to his stepdaughter and 
to them. Ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. No doubt reminding all of his guests, the who's who of Galilee, of his own power and abundance, which allowed for such extravagant generosity. But directed by her mother, who was herself fearful of her own place, His daughter asks for the one thing that will force Herod to finally choose between following God and what he sees as necessary for self-preservation. Faced with the prospect of showing weakness in front of his guest, the who's who of Galilee, even in what the story recounts as his deep grief, he is deeply grieved at the prospect of bringing his daughter the head of John the Baptist, Even though he has this deep grief, Herod immediately chooses to follow through with her wish. Ending John's life is a less scary prospect than risking his own status. And besides, all that stuff that John was saying was so confusing. Herod's pattern of behavior is the pattern of human behavior. It is the mark of what John Calvin, the who just had a birthday, the Reformation theologian whom Presbyterians claim to adore, but I'm not sure how many of us actually know exactly what he taught at this point, what he would call total depravity, or our innate proclivity towards sin from birth. Conception? And that's actually a nice way of putting it. Total depravity proclaims that from inception we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, as Paul says, and that it is only by God's grace that we are able to choose otherwise. Total depravity is a pretty bleak estimation of the human condition and a doctrine to which I struggle with, to which I struggle and, and, yet, uh, and let, yet relate. And because I am a parent, I on occasion see this truth. The patterns of parenting include many interactions which go as follows. Parent gives child instruction. Child looks as if being attentive, as if attentive during said instruction, and seems at least a little bit interested and even nods head on occasion. Child wants to do well by parent, but is distracted, which amounts to what is to be considered a basic ignoring of aforementioned parental instruction. A reminder is issued. For some, this reminder works. If you know of those, let me know. (laughs) For many, this reminder becomes an unintentional signal to double down, (laughs) and feats of stubbornness ensue. Calm parent who never ever loses her or his temper gives gentle third reminder. Child searches internal catalog of what has worked in the past and chooses between, I didn't hear you, and I didn't understand what you said. Rinse and repeat as necessary. (laughs) Laugh it up, but we adults are worse. And our choices can have more lasting consequences. Indeed, I see this pattern in myself. Upon hearing the word of God, the call of God toward living into the kingdom, I am moved. I look attentive during sermons, I hope. And I, I nod my head. I agree. I wonder about practical life applications. I want to do well by God. I do. But I am also prone to distraction, which amounts to what is considered a basic ignoring of aforementioned God-inspired life-changing ideas. I go back to church. A reminder is issued. 
Sometimes this reminder works. Sometimes this reminder results in me doubling down. Feats of stubbornness ensue. I, child of God, search internal catalog of what has worked for me in the past and choose between I didn't hear you and I didn't understand what you meant. Resolve to keep thinking about it. Rinse and repeat. Can you relate? Back to the story at hand, I am, as Patrick said, struck by the fear that permeates it, by Herod's fear of maintaining his own space, by the fear that leads him to double down. The story begins with Herod's fear and ends with it, or ends with the beginning and begins with the end, but it's filled with fear. That fear leads to violence. And it leads to the passing on of that fear to the next generation as John's head is literally passed down into the hands of Herodias' daughter. And while we may not be able to relate to the specifics of Herod's actions or fears, God knows we can relate to fear itself. Fear is a part of what it means to be human, and fear is healthy at times. It can be protective when used appropriately, like if you're near the lion's den at the zoo and the gate is open, you should probably use your fear. But fear can also become a disease that eats away at us. The problem with fear is that too often it takes truth and chews it up and spits it out into a distorted story of reality. Fear focuses us on the wrong parts of our story. Fear tells us in whispers tales of scarcity. Fear tells us that the opinions of others are of ultimate concern. Fear tells us that we are just not able. Fear tells us that only we are able. Fear tells us that God is not enough and that we must be enough. Fear craves the security of power without considering the responsibility it brings. Fear's primary concern is self-preservation. Fear keeps us where we are and prevents us from taking risks for the sake of the gospel. Fear drove Herod, and too often it drives me. I did an exercise a couple of months ago, which is how we're going to get to Psalm 23, and in it I did it with a clergy group. And in it you read uh, Psalm 23, and then you write down the opposite of Psalm 23. And every person in the group came up with something different, and they were dark. You know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Here is what I came up with. I am the shepherd. I want all the time. I never rest. I wander away from the waters. My soul is spent. I lead myself down the wrong paths for my name's sake. And even though I walk through light, I fear all the time. For I am alone. I have only my rod and my staff. And they bring me no comfort. 
as the people in our group went around and read their version, their inversion of Psalm 23, what struck me most was how, how deeply I connected to the opposite of Psalm 23. I want all the time. I never rest. My soul is spent. I fear I am alone. This is the story that we often tell ourselves. This is the story that guides a lot of our behavior or can. It may seem pretty bleak, like Calvin's doctrine of total depravity, which stemmed from the early teachings of Augustine and from Paul, but like all stories, the stories of fear and fallenness do not happen in a vacuum. This is not the only story in Mark. And Mark is very particular about where he puts this flashback. If we look at where Mark chooses to put this particular tale of fear, we are given clues to how we might move in a different way through this world. How we might look to the promises of God, to the good news that stands in contrast to a world, our world, driven by fear and self-interest. The story comes immediately after Jesus sends his disciples out into the world to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God, to heal and to teach. It is an unnerving sending, one in which we can imagine that they were afraid. They have given up basically all of their earthly possessions, and Jesus even gives them a warning. Look, if, if you get to someone's door and they... I am falling apart up here. If they, you get to someone's door and they reject you, dust off your feet and keep moving. Right? They have been warned. They leave their families, they leave their stuff, and they go. And Jesus sends them out, not alone, but two by two. The remembrance of John's beheading begins with the stories of the disciples being sent to usher in the kingdom of God, which stands in deep contrast to the kingdom of Herod. And we too must make constant choices between these kingdoms, and our choices are almost never easy or comfortable. And we fail and we fail a lot. But something of the good news in the preceding story is this, that Jesus does send them in pairs, sends them together, not alone. We in this community and beyond as Christians partner with one another so that we can hold each other up and be uncomfortable for the sake of the kingdom of God, so that we can make hard choices, so that we can combat the the narratives of fear that permeate the kingdom of the world. This is good news. How grateful I am to have you as my partners. In the story that follows, this strange tale of Herod and John, is Mark's account of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. What a stark contrast these meals are, the meal of the who's who and the meal of the meek of the oppressed, of the poorest, who are fed on what could barely serve a few families. It is a story of enough and even abundance. It is a story of God's grace. So if 
the inclusion of this bizarre story of the beheading of John asks anything of us, perhaps it is this, to remember what stories we are to live by. Where can we replace fear with hope and trust? How can we lean on one another when these choices are particularly difficult? How can we tell the right stories, tell the stories of the angels who constantly remind the people in the Bible, do not be afraid? To tell the whole story of John the Baptist who said what he meant and meant what he said, who walked the walk and talked the talk, who chose courage over fear, even at the risk of his own life. To tell the stories of the members and friends of Mother Emmanuel going to the Bible study the week after that same place had been so gruesomely violated. To tell the stories of children and teachers returning to school in the wake of unspeakable violence. To tell the stories of men and women who suffered abuse because they've spoken out. To recall the stories of intervention, of the first time somebody has spoken up at AA or NA. To tell stories about risks for the sake of the gospel so that we might, too, live into them. To tell the story of Jesus, who gathered at the table with the least and the lowest, and invites us there still into his narrative of grace and forgiveness, and to pray and pray again. And would you join with me? The words of the psalmist, who show us that the opposite of fear is trust. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. May it be so. Amen. Thank you.